as we go through the minor prophets, I, I think just when I found one that I, I think we're not familiar with, I find another one that I think we're even more unfamiliar with, and uh, Nahum fits, uh, fits that bill. It's not uh, at the top of the list um, uh, of most people's uh, sermon series, and so, uh, and yet, <coughs> Uh, it is uh, <clears throat> it is a good one. Uh, in, in fact, it's a sequel, if you will. Um, the book of Jonah um, has God sending Jonah to the people of Nineveh to declare uh, his message of judgment in which they repent and God relents his disaster. Um, <clears throat> we also find Nahum, um, uh, God uh, sending Nahum to declare his coming judgment against Nineveh. Um <clears throat> I was thinking about movie sequels, and it just so happened uh, that I watched uh, a movie and its sequel uh, this weekend. Um, we decided uh, to have a, a, a movie night um, on Saturday or Friday, and we watched Cheaper by the Dozen. Um, and, and then uh, on Saturday, we watched its sequel, Cheaper by the Dozen 2. Uh, I don't know if you are into movies and sequels, and uh, I'm, I'm the kind of person, until I had kids, I, I kind of have a only watch a movie once unless it's like uh, incredible um, and and you have to watch it twice and uh, once I had children I, d- I realized that you just watch the same movie over and over and over and over and over and over and over again until another one comes along that you watch over and over and over and over again um, <coughs> but uh, there's something about a sequel uh, in that uh, it, it piggybacks off of the first but it often brings out something that you didn't see before you know cheaper by the dozen uh, the first uh, movie uh, kind of shows uh, the um, the the process in which a, a mom and a dad realize they uh, their family is really the gift and the blessing and they're off chasing their dreams and they realize that right under their nose they're missing out uh, on what means the most to them um, and and so it has its own humor of how they go about that and Steve Martin is just a you know humorous in and of himself I suppose uh, but cheaper by the dozen too is kind of um, looking at the cusp of the, some of the kids growing up and. Uh, and, and you realize that uh, mom and dad, rather than uh, ignoring their children, they're trying to hold on too, too tightly to their kids, not being willing to let them go and, and appreciate the, um, the, the joys uh, of raising children and releasing them into the world. And, and you see through the humor of the competition between uh, the Murtaugh's and, the, um, <coughs> and uh, what's the other family's name? Um, the Steve Martin's family, I can't think of his name. Um, <coughs> and... Uh, their their inability to let go of their older kids and watch them flourish in the world and and so usually the sequel brings out something that wasn't there in the in the first movie and allows you to appreciate it and I think in a similar way Nahum is the sequel in a way to to Jonah uh, that this the sequel isn't about Jonah or Nahum or really even about Nineveh uh, but what we get a glimpse of in Nahum coupled with Jonah is a full blown picture of the character of God. Um, and, and alongside the character of God, we get the, the depth and the riches of the gospel. Um, if it rains, uh, we will uh, appropriately take our board and move inside if it continues doing this um, <coughs> and, uh, uh, and go from there. So um <coughs> this wasn't in the forecast, so uh, thus uh, uh <coughs> the, the situation uh, that we have to deal with here in Michigan. Um <coughs> But assuming that it, this is just a little sprinkle, we'll, uh, we'll keep going. Uh, so, Lord, uh, don't send the flood like you sent to Nineveh. Um, stop the rain uh, uh, like you did for Elijah right now, Lord. Um, so, uh, <coughs> Nahum uh, is written approximately 120 to 150 years, somewhere in that range, after the book of Jonah. So, Jonah goes to Nineveh before Assyria, which is Nineveh's the capital of Assyria, before they uh, take uh, the northern kingdom of Israel and take them into captivity in 722 B.C. So Jonah is written around 800, somewhere in 800 uh, B.C. range. Um, Most likely Nahum's written around 630 uh, B.C. Uh, We know that it mentions the battle of Thebes when the Assyrians defeated the Egyptians. Uh, You'll see that mentioned in Nahum 3 verse 8. Uh, And we know that uh, that ultimately Assyria would be defeated by the, the Chaldeans and the Medes, which would be the Babylonians, around 612 B.C. So somewhere between 663 and 612 B.C., uh, Nahum speaks, uh, God speaks through Nahum, declaring judgment against Nineveh. Um, and 
And taken together, what you really see in Jonah and Nahum, I think in many ways, is they're unpacking for us Exodus 34, 6 and 7. They're unpacking the character of God as he revealed himself to Moses at Mount Sinai, declaring this is who God is, a God who is unbelievably rich in compassion and mercy and steadfast love. That's the message of Jonah. And it extends beyond what Israel often uh, thought it did. It extends to the nations as who God is, as he chose Abraham to be a blessing to the nations. But in Exodus 34, God says that, that he is also just and righteous, and he will not overlook our sin. And Nahum shows us this complete picture of God's steadfast love and mercy and compassion alongside his righteousness and holiness and justice. It's, it's as if uh, uh, the Apostle Paul picked up on this in, in Romans uh, chapter 11, verse 22, as he unpacks the, the working out uh, of the gospel for the Jew and the Gentile, when he says in Romans eleven twenty-two, 22, note the kindness and the severity of God. The kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you will be cut off. What Paul is saying here is that unbelieving Israel has been cut off because of their unbelief. Believing Israel, along with believing Gentiles, have been grafted in and been shown God's kindness. And if their faith doesn't uh, carry on, it proves to not be faith at all, but uh, they are, are, uh, are, are, as it says, they'll also be cut off if they don't continue in His kindness, walking uh, in, uh, in the grace of God that He provides in Jesus Christ. And note the kindness and the severity of God. We can't have the gospel without the kindness and the severity of God. We can't have the gospel without God's wrath and without God's mercy and his love. And these two things come together. These, uh, these two books, Jonah and Nahum, the, the sequel now completes this picture for us of God's character and the depth of his goodness and of his justice. And it shows us how we're to respond to this kind of God and the kind of people that we're supposed to be. So I, I, I want us to see three takeaways from the book of Nahum and what it has to say to us uh, this evening. First, I want us to have a bigger view of God and his goodness, a bigger view of God and his goodness. Uh, we heard it read, but just turn your eyes back to Nahum uh, verses chapter one, verses two through seven. Do you notice how it starts with the Lord is, the Lord is, the Lord is. Three times uh, we see that statement just in verses 2 through 3. And then once more in verse 7, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. You see, the, the statements that unfold here are really uh, just restating what God revealed of himself in Exodus chapter 34. Uh, you, you can turn there if you'd like, but in Exodus uh, chapter 33 through 34, we see um, Moses on Mount Sinai pleading with God uh, to, uh, to continue on, to allow his presence to continue on with Israel. God had redeemed um, Israel out of Egypt and shown them his mighty act of redemption. And then he was uh, called Moses up to Mount Sinai to give him the, the law, the Ten Commandments that were to define for God's people how they were to live and how they were to be a showcase people for the nations, showing the nations around what it meant to know and follow God. And as Moses was on the mountain, the people of Israel uh, are falling into idolatry and, and forgetting God's kindness and forgetting uh, his act of redemption and going their own way, uh, as it uh, Martin Luther would say, or actually, I think the other reformer, John Calvin, would say, our hearts are idol factories. We just continually are pumping out new idols. Get rid of one, and we'll find another one somewhere else. So that we elevate above God, and that's exactly what Israel did. And when Moses came down and he sees uh, the, the, the rebellion, the debauchery, the idolatry, he throws the, the tablets, and they break, and, uh, and God says, uh, you can keep on going, but I'm not going with you. And Moses pleads with God. He says, God, go with us. If you don't go with us, how will they know that we're your people? And he says in Exodus chapter 33, verses 7 through 19, the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And then Moses said, 
Lord, please show me your glory. Moses' request, show me your glory, God. And God responded, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. And it says that God hid Moses in the cleft of a rock because Moses couldn't behold his glory at a full-on view. And he allowed his goodness to pass before him. And in Exodus 34, 5-9, it says that the Lord declared, descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and he proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worshiped, and he said, If I now have found favor in your sight, oh, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. What we see in Exodus 33 through 34 is that God's glory is inseparable from his goodness. Moses said, let me see your glory, and God said, I'm going to allow my goodness to pass before you. Exodus 34, 6 through 7 is telling us that, that God's goodness is an essential aspect of his character. it's woven into all the different attributes that define God. Uh, Today I want us to see in just these first few verses of chapter 1 how God's holiness, His justice, His patience, His love, His mercy are all understood in light of His goodness. They're not the same as His goodness, but they're understood in light of His goodness. And, And in many ways, all of God's attributes and character have to be understood in relation to one another. We can't isolate one out from the other. And Exodus 34 shows us this picture of how uh, sometimes things that we don't think go together, go together. And it's going to show us how uh, ultimately what Nahum promises us as God's people, as he writes about the judgment of Nineveh, he's writing to God's people, and the hope of Nahum is the hope of God's goodness for his people. Nahum chapter 1 verse 7 is the Uh, The defining verse that I want us to to come back to. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. The hope of God's goodness is what I want us to see in Nahum. And here in Nahum chapter 1 verses 2 through 7, we get this bigger view of who God is and his goodness. Uh, I think it's actually in the famous book, Knowing God by J.I. Packer. He has a a chapter in there about the goodness and the severity of God. And, and he kind of talks about how in, a, in our modern day um, culture, we have a Santa Claus view of theology. We, we like to emphasize uh, the, the benevolent nature of God uh, as if he's uh, a jolly old soul who drops off goodies benevolently for uh, all of the little children. Um, and <clears throat> uh, and, and we, we kind of have this view of him that's often one-dimensional. Um, and, and we've done that because we actually we have a problem with the idea of justice, uh, the, the justice of God, that is, and the, the righteous judgment of God. That, that's, that makes us uncomfortable. And, and I think as a, as a Christian, uh, if uh, <clears throat> you, you're not honest with yourself, I think all of us would prefer that we had a God who said, you know, uh, everybody gets off free, you know, pass, go, collect $200, and uh, everything's good. Uh, that that we, we, we wish there wasn't judgment. I'm a parent, and part of my job is to, yes, love my children, but also to have discipline in my home. And, and I wish I didn't have to discipline my children. I, I wish that it didn't fall upon me to be consistent in my discipline. And, of course, my discipline is a pale comparison of God's discipline because I'm inconsistent and fraught with my own sin. Uh, God is perfect in all of his ways and uh, just in all of his judgments. But we... We often, in a desire to make God more appealing to, uh, to the prevailing culture around us, we, we make him one-dimensional. We, we proclaim the, the message that, uh, that, that begins Exodus 34, 6, of God being steadfast in love and gracious and compassionate and forgiving. And then we mumble, verse 7, 
but by no means will overlook our sins. Uh, because it, it can make us uncomfortable. And, and yet, what we do when we do that is we cut off the good news that, that, that is who God is. We, we cut off people from, from knowing and experiencing how God has revealed himself. I think the reason Exodus 34 gets repeated time and time again in the Old Testament and then later in the New Testament is because it's the essential revelation of who God is to us. When you, when you think about who is God, that question, I, I don't think you could find a better place than Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7. It's a direct response to Moses asking to see the glory of God. And God responds and declares who he is, his personal name, Yahweh, his covenant name, Yahweh, the Lord, all caps that you see that in your Bible. This is God saying who I am to my people who will trust in me and who, find, who take refuge in me. And it's way bigger than we often give God credit for. God is way better than we often envision him. And sometimes in our desire to make him more appealing to others, we end up distorting him to others. And, and I think the reason uh, that this is particularly true when we think about God's goodness and, and his justice, his judgment, one of the things that makes us uncomfortable is we, we have a hard time wrestling with how he can be both. <clears throat> and, and we're going to see here in a minute how his goodness helps us to understand his holiness and his justice. See, when we think about the goodness of God, I think it's a... It's a concept that's a little vague, to be honest. The Bible's filled with calls to, to remember God's goodness and to dwell on his goodness. Psalm 103 is one of my favorite psalms of, of calling us to remember the Lord and forget not all his benefits, forget not all his goodness. The Lord is good and greatly to be praised, the psalmist declares. But his goodness, what is it? I, I, I think there's a sense in which we think, well, God's good, like, goes without saying right you know he's good all the time all the time God is good you know like that's what we know that but but what is his goodness I think the best way to understand it as I've studied it is that it refers to the perfection of his nature it's the essence of God to be good and that because God is good he does good to all creation you remember what he said when he saw his creation in Genesis 1 and 2 it's good six times and then the seventh time it's very good. God's creation reveals his character. He made a world that's very good because God in his essence is good. All that he does is very good. In his nature, there's nothing lacking or wanting in God. God isn't without anything. There's no defect in God that needs to be corrected. There's no addition to God that would make him better. He's good. An old <clears throat> Puritan preacher Thomas Manton said, He is originally good, good of himself, which nothing else is. For all creatures are good only by participation and communication from God. We are good to the degree that we are connected to God and reflect whether it's his common good, apart from knowing him by saving faith, or uh, the good that he works in us as his people. But God is essentially good. Not only good, but goodness itself. The creature's good is a super-added quality, but for God, it's his essence. He's infinitely good. The creature's good is but a drop, but in God, there is an infinite ocean and gathering together of good. He is eternally and immutably, unchangingly good. He cannot be less good than he is, and as there is no addition made to him, so no subtraction can be made from him. God's goodness is the perfection of, of who he is, of all of his other attributes. <clears throat> his holiness we understand in light of his goodness. Look at uh, what it says there in Nahum um, chapter 1, verse 2. We see his holiness, that the Lord is a jealous and avenging God, avenging and wrathful. He takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. <clears throat> we think about God's holiness. His holiness means that the Lord loves what is good rather than what is evil. To be unholy is to love what is evil, to love what is sin. But God doesn't love sin, nor is he tempted by sin. He's perfect in righteousness and holiness. So it's his goodness that leads him to uphold his righteousness. It's good for the Lord to be righteous. It's good for the Lord to uphold righteousness. And that's why he's a jealous and avenging God. See, to say that God is good is also to say that God is our highest good. 
the thing that we need and the thing that will satisfy us most, the greatest good for us, is to know and enjoy God as He has revealed Himself. And so if that's our highest good, anything that would take our hearts away from enjoying God as our highest good, anything that would rob us of our allegiance to Him is an offense to God. And He is a jealous God, not because He's capricious, um, and, and not because uh, we don't know what he's thinking and one moment he's fine and then the next moment he's, he's jealous. But at his core, because he's concerned with us experiencing the highest good, which is found in him, the ultimate good, he's jealous for his people and for our allegiance. And his jealousy points us to his justice. Because if something is subtracting and taking away our allegiance from him, God is right to be concerned with it. That's why he says he's avenging and wrathful, taking vengeance on his adversaries, keeping wrath. That in and of itself makes us step back and go, whoa, you know, there's a word for you. Memorize uh, Nahum uh, chapter 1, verse 3 this week, uh, or, or chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 2 this week. Jealous and avenging God, avenging and wrathful, takes vengeance on his adversaries, keeps wrath for his enemies. Look down at chapter seven, or at verse 7 and verse 8. We already said that the Lord is good, but, but see what follows in verse 8? But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. How are verse 7 and verse 8 even together? Does that not contradict that the Lord is good and that he will, uh, with an overflowing flood, make a complete end to his enemies and pursue his enemies into darkness? No, those two things don't contradict one another, but they flow out of one another. You see, when God punishes evil in the temporary moment like he's about to in 612 make an utter destruction of Nineveh, so much so that uh, for, for, for decades we didn't even know where Nineveh was. God so undid the mighty nation of Assyria, who he used to conquer his own people. He so judged them that People couldn't even find them on the map. When he does that in a moment or he does that in eternity, it's not contrary to his goodness, but it's actually an expression of his goodness. You see, because if God didn't judge sin, he wouldn't be good. Because God's goodness is the perfection of who he is. For God not to judge sin would mean that he would be indifferent to sin. It means that he would compromise his perfection. It means that he would stop being God. For God not to judge sin would require him to not be God. It would mean he goes back on his very character. Choosing indifference to his goodness. We don't want a God of love and goodness if that means there's no justice. You see, we... we experience and we, we realize in, in today's modern, uh, in our moment today, as we seek justice, and rightly so, as we've seen repeatedly how it flows from God's word, that God's justice is only understood in light of his goodness, the perfection of who he is, of his holiness and his righteousness. And when that is, um, <clears throat> when that is transgressed, injustice takes place. Not just when we meet something that we don't like, but when something transgresses the very character and command of God, do we find injustice and that flows from his goodness. And so for there to be evil and for there to be sin in the world, we must understand it against the backdrop of God's goodness. And for us to long for, uh, for justice requires not only that we have a loving God, but a holy and righteous God who will not overlook sin, who indeed is wrathful against sin and takes vengeance against his adversaries. We want a God who is just as well as a God who is good. And the good news is we don't have to invent a message about God being that. This is who God revealed himself to be in Exodus 34 and who he continues to reveal himself to be and how he put it fully on display when God demonstrated his kindness and his severity by putting Jesus on the cross. You see, uh, one pastor and theologian, R.C. Sproul, said, Divine wrath and the service of divine justice is one way that God displays his goodness to his creation. 
divine wrath in the service of divine justice, meaning God's wrath is poured out against our sin, the cosmic injustice of sin, is the one way in which God displays his goodness to his creation. Just as we don't want a God who is loving and good without a God who is just, we also don't want a God of justice who is not good. You understand the the difference? We don't want a God who is just but who is not good either. And the story of the Bible is how the goodness and grace of God and the justice of God are satisfied in Jesus. You see, the justice of God will either be poured out on us or it will be poured out on a substitute. And the message of the gospel is that God poured it out on Jesus, who is our substitute, bearing the judgment of God that we deserve, displaying and extending the love and grace and mercy of God that we don't deserve, that all who would trust in him and take refuge in him might be saved. You see, at the heart of God's goodness, this perfection of who he is is a generosity, a generosity about God. And this is how we not only see God's goodness helps us to understand his uh, holiness and his justice, but how it helps us to understand his patience, his love, and his mercy. Look at verse 3 in, in, in chapter 1. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. He will by no means clear the guilty. He goes on to say, his way is in the whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea, makes it dry, dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake. When God shows up, everything changes. But God's goodness, as it declares here in verse 7, and as he displays here throughout Nahum, is defined by a generosity. And uh, another, another author and pastor, Kevin DeYoung, describing God's goodness, he says that goodness is the broader category encompassing several of God's attributes, as I described, patience, love, and mercy. His goodness towards those in misery, we call mercy. His goodness to forbear with those who deserve judgment, we call patience. His goodness to those who are guilty, we call grace. Goodness to those in misery, we call mercy. Goodness to forbear with those deserving his judgment, we call patience. And goodness to those who are guilty, we call grace. This is, this is who God is. Not a simple view of God, but a complex and a deep view of God. A view of God that helps us make sense of the reality of this fallen world. And that's what I want to uh, encourage us in as we read the prophets. And the reason I think Jonah and Nahum actually perhaps give us one of the best uh, portrayals of God and the gospel is because they give us this full-orbed view of his steadfast love and mercy, as well as his uncompromising righteousness and justice. That's on full display for us, that God won't, won't for one second be untrue to who he is. And all of that comes to fruition in Christ, who embodies God's very character for us in his perfect life, in his sacrificial death, and in his victorious resurrection. Nahum gives us a deeper view of who God is and his goodness. And it's that view that we need, I think, to navigate life in this world. We don't need a smaller view of God. We don't need a more palatable view of God. We need who God declares himself to be, to be who guides us in this world. That will help us make sense of the terrible fallen world that we live in and the injustices that we see, the sin against us, as well as the surprise of our own sin in us. As well as the simple joys of a kid's laughter and the goodness of God's grace in our life. We, we need a God who, who has shown us his, uh, his goodness to all of humanity, that we all experience his, his reign and his son and the common goodness of God that he's displayed for all of us, as well as the special goodness for those who have trusted in Christ. The goodness and, and graciousness and generosity of God to those who believe in him. I don't know, I don't know sometimes how we can make it through the world with, with a shallow and one-dimensional view of God. 
in the end, I think it will lead us to reject God. Not the true God, but the version of God that we come up with in our own minds. I, I don't know whether somebody who listens to this later or somebody that you know in your life, as we talk about being bold with the gospel this summer, I am convinced that people reject God not because they are rejecting the biblical view of who God declares himself to be as unbelievably rich and steadfast love, grace and mercy, as well as uncompromising and justice and righteousness. They're not, they're not rejecting Exodus 34, 6 through 7. They're not rejecting who Jesus declares himself to be in the Gospels. They're often rejecting a misrepresentation of who God is through our own sinfulness or through some distorted, one-dimensional, reduced view of who God is. Whether it's a Santa Claus view of theology, uh, a view of who God is, uh, or some other view of who God is. And so let's not shrink back from sharing the truth of who God is. Not a small view of God, but a big view of God that says this isn't, this isn't uh, cheap platitudes uh, to help you make sense of life and to, to get on with doing life your way. This isn't some cheap country song where you can, uh, you know, do your thing on Monday through Saturday and go to church on Sunday. This, this isn't some uh, sentimental view of God that says you just need a little uh, positivity in your life. This is a deep, rich view of God that helps us make sense of a dark and confused and discouraging world so many times. We need a big view of God. And the good news is God has revealed himself in his word for us to know, enjoy, and for us to share. And alongside that deep view of God, we also need <clears throat> a deeper understanding of sin and judgment. The message of Nahum, after you get through, really, verses 1 through 7, <clears throat> takes a noted turn for the worse, uh, for Nineveh in particular. Um, <clears throat> we see that God says he's going to make an end to his adversaries and pursue his enemies into darkness. Chapter 1, verse 8. Chapter 1, verse 9. Why do you plot? What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time, for they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are full strength in many. This is why many people believe that, my, uh, that Nahum is written around 630 because um, the uh, the reign uh, the the peak of Assyria's reign was around 633 BC when they they had defeated the Egyptians they were at the height of their power they had alliances with all the other nations and God says though you are at full strength and many you will be cut down and pass away God goes on to say no more shall your name be perpetuated for the house of your gods verse 14 I will cut off the carved image and metal image, I will make your grave, for you are vile. Chapter 2 declares the destruction of Nineveh, how God is going to, to destroy Nineveh. Chapter 3 is uh, this, uh, these numerous woes and taunts against, Israel, against uh, Nineveh. Uh, he, he speaks of their sin. He, we see the, the, uh, the evil and the violence that, that marked the people of Assyria. I mentioned this during uh, our sermon in Jonah, that Jonah probably was rightly scared of Nineveh. They were barbaric people. Um, one commentator in describing Nineveh called them a terrorist state, uh, as they would often uh, take heads of those that they had conquered and impale them on poles and, and put them on display for all the, all the people. I don't know if it's a legend or if it's true, but it's said that when they would capture someone, the, the head of the people, they would cut off their legs and, their, and, and one of their arms and leave one arm for them to shake uh, the arm of the person in mockery of their defeat before uh, ultimately they would die. They were a brutal people, a violent people. They were an idolatrous people. In the end, it says, um, <clears throat> at the end of Nahum, like Jonah, it also ends with a question. If you look at Nahum chapter 3, verse 19, there is no easing your hurt, your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you, mocking you, taunting you, just as you did your enemies, is what God's saying. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? Who hasn't been touched by your evil, God asks. 
next week we'll look at Habakkuk and we'll see God's sovereignty and it often we're left wondering how can God use a terrible wicked nation like Assyria to judge his people? How could that be? How could God use the Babylonians to judge Judah? That's the question of Habakkuk. But here at Nahum, we see that though God uses sinful people, sinful nations to accomplish his purposes, they are but a nation uh, in his hand. Uh, A stream of water is the king's heart in the hand of the Lord. And though God uses a sinful nation like Assyria to discipline and judge Israel, He will not fail to hold them to account. And I know as I read Nahum, most of our sin probably isn't to the degree uh, of this. You know, I I haven't seen any of you impale, uh, you know, any heads on a pole. Um, I haven't seen the kind of violence and uh, and brutality that marked the people of Assyria. And though our expressions of sin are different, what you, what you can't help but see as you think about God's judgment is that his judgment comes because people rebel and sin against God. Yes, their sin expressed towards others, uh, towards their <clears throat> exploitation of others, their injustice of others. They're a city full of lies and plunder. Uh, <clears throat> it says that... Uh, <clears throat> That, that they're full of, uh, full of this violence and this filth. <clears throat> it says that they've built their nation upon the backs of exploiting others. All these things are true, but it all stems from a heart that's rejected God. It all stems from a heart that says, God doesn't see. I don't care what God says. God won't hold accountable. At the, at the heart of, of a deeper view of, uh, of, God's, uh, of God's judgment is understanding the nature of sin. We often think of our sin that's being expressed out there, but sin first begins within us. As Jesus told his disciples, it's what comes, it's not what goes inside you that makes you unclean, but it's what comes from inside you that makes you unclean. And all of these sins reside in the heart, the heart that rejects God and rebels against God. And when we think about our sin, we should ask the question of Nahum chapter 1 verse 6. Who could stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? You see, God's judgment should stop and make us think. What is the outcome of my sin? Sure, maybe there's no consequence for my sin now. Maybe my sin is of such that uh, I don't see the consequence. But the prophets remind us time and time again... Though you don't see the consequences, though God's patience persists, it's his very patience that's meant to lead you to repentance. Look at Romans chapter <clears throat> chapter 2 as God uh, <clears throat> describes this very thing. <clears throat> In Romans chapter 2, <clears throat> verse 2, we know the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things, those who Uh, rebel against God. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet you do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Here he's talking to the self-righteous person. He says, do you think that you can do the things that you judge others of, and yet you'll escape the judgment of God? Verse 4, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and his patience, which flow from his goodness, not knowing that God's kindness and his goodness that's demonstrated you is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of the wrath of the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. You see, we think we can sin without consequence, but instead what we're doing is what Romans two verses four through five talk about. Presuming against God's kindness and storing up wrath for ourselves on the day of judgment. See, God's judgment should stop and make us think. If you're in Christ, it should stop and give you gratitude for what God has done for you. 
as you think about your friend or neighbor or family member who doesn't know God, it should stop and burden your heart to pray. Move your feet towards them to love and to speak truth and love. See, God's, God's judgment is certain. What he says here in, uh, in chapter 1, verses 8 through 9, is that God won't get it wrong. There won't be a second time. God will make a complete end of the adversaries. And what he does, just as we've seen oftentimes throughout what he did to Edom and what he does here to Nineveh, is a portrait of what God will do to all nations one day, all people one day who reject him. God will bring a complete end. And his judgment will be perfect. We may not see his judgment now, but we can know that his judgment is certain. And ultimately, if I could say it this way, the terrible result of sin and the essence of of God's judgment is found in chapter 2, verse 13, and in chapter 3, verse 5. Look at the statement. It's the same exact statement. Behold... I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. Then once more in chapter 3, verse 5. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. God's judgment, when we persist in our sin without repentance, just as God tells Nineveh, one day he will tell all people who persist in their unbelief and their sin, he will say, I am against you. And he will judge those who don't take refuge in him. That's the essence of judgment, is that God would be against us. And this ultimately brings us to the third point that I want us to see. And that's a renewed trust and worship of God. We have a bigger view of who God is and his goodness, a deeper view of sin and judgment, but a renewed trust and worship of God. See, God is good to all of his creation. We've said that. He's, he's, he's shown his goodness in his creation. He's good to all creation. He makes the sun rise and the rains fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. His goodness is, uh, is on display in that we're not as sinful as we could be, even though we're all sinful. Uh, his goodness is on display in the common grace that you can know people who don't know God and they can be incredibly gracious, kind, and good, decent people. You see, the the truth is you can go through this life having some measure of satisfaction and success apart from knowing and believing God. The Bible doesn't teach that it's impossible to have those things apart from God, but it says that one day there will be an account, uh, and, and though many pursue life apart from God, we're often not satisfied in the life that we have, and our hunger and our thirst and our longings for something else point us to who God made us to be and how God made us to enjoy Him. So God's good to his whole creation, but he's particularly good to his people, to those who trust him, to those who have experienced his steadfast love and his mercy, to to those who do the second half of verse 7 in chapter 1. The Lord is good, and who knows that the Lord is good? It's those who find him to be their stronghold in a day of trouble. It's those who take refuge in him that can say that the Lord knows me. And that I know him. It's Martin Luther who said that Nahum teaches us to trust God and to believe, especially when we despair of all human help and human powers and counsel, that the Lord stands by those who are his. He shields his own against the attacks of the enemy, be they ever so powerful. It's that those who take refuge in him, it reminds us to turn to him and to trust him. We can trust him because not only is he just, but he's slow to anger. He he sent Jonah to Nineveh the first time, had compassion on them when they repented, but now some 130 years have gone by before God officially brings judgment to Nineveh. Think about the patience of God. Think about how long you persisted in unbelief before God had grace on you. And don't count out anybody who currently, that you know, persist in unbelief, rejecting, rebelling against God. Yes, God's day of judgment is coming, so we should pursue them with with an urgency. In our own lives, when we see sin, we should repent of it with an urgency. But how we see God's patience, not only to Nineveh, 
but also his patience to, to Judah, the southern kingdom. That's who um, Nahum's writing to here. And they, they uh, would eventually, uh, through Sennacherib, would be attacked by the Assyrians. The Assyrians would try to take Judah, and God would, would prevent them from taking Judah. He would preserve them. <clears throat> and God is telling Judah, don't you see how I am judging your enemies? How I'm protecting you, providing refuge, a stronghold to you in your day of trouble. Will you not return to me? See, Nahum's an invitation to Judah to humble themselves, to return to the Lord, to trust him, to renew their worship of him, to forsake all other gods and allegiances. Alongside uh, Nahum, you'll see in, in Isaiah, uh, of God calling his people to, uh, to be comforted by the Lord, but to turn from their sin. God's protected them from Assyria, but if they don't turn from their sin, God will bring Babylon uh, to destroy Judah. And often, as we, uh, as true of all of us, Judah would be half-hearted in their worship of God and would persist in their own rebellion. And God would discipline them and bring his, his discipline and judgment against Judah by taking them off into, into exile, into Babylon. You see, all of this news of God's judgment of, of Assyria and Nineveh is meant to provoke in Judah a renewed trust and worship of God. Look, look at Nahum chapter 1, verse 15. This actually is also quoted in Isaiah 52, verse 7. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feast, O Judah. Fulfill your vows. For never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. The good news is that God will judge Judah's enemies. Would protect and redeem them. And this good news of, of God's goodness expressed in both his judgment as well as his redemption. Would lead God's people to worship. To keep their feast to renew their vows. This is the language of worship for the people of Israel, for the people of Judah. It's good news that, that Nahum proclaims uh, to the people of Judah as he proclaims the, his God's judgment of Nineveh. And it's this good news that's meant to provoke in us a trust in God, a taking refuge in Him, as it says in verse 7, a renewing of our worship of Him, as it says in verse 15. As we have this big view of God and a deeper view of our sin and his judgment, it's meant to lead us to trust and to worship him. You see, in our, in our life, as we think about God's judgment, if we put our faith in Christ, we will never hear what God says to Assyria. The essence of God's judgment is that he says to Assyria, I am against you. You remember what God says to uh, through Paul to the Romans and, and to all those who are in Christ in Romans 8, 31 through 32. If the Lord is for us, who can be against us? If he who did not withhold, if he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The good news of the gospel is that God is indeed for us. And has demonstrated that he is for us and that he did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for us. And in him we graciously have all things. And so when we think about future judgment, we can be secure that the Lord isn't against us, but he's for us. But also when we go through the difficulties of life, whether it's the difficulties that are associated with this past year in a pandemic, the own particular struggles and trials that we have with our own sin, Maybe it's in our families, extended families, the trouble that we experience, the uh, alienation in relationships. Maybe it's the, uh, just the disappointment of things not working out the way that we want. We also have the hope of God's goodness being for us that enables us to continually run back to Him. You see, in some ways, as I think about what it means to take refuge in God, it's, it's not just this one time that we're taking refuge in Him. 
But it's a daily decision that we make. That no matter what comes our way, that we run to him and we take refuge in him. And when we take refuge in him, the way in which we respond to God's goodness most appropriately is to worship him, is to declare his praise, is, is, to, is to give him the, uh, the praise that he's due. <clears throat> when we think about God's goodness, it ought to provoke within us a, um, a worship, worshipful and grateful heart. Listen to Psalm 103 as we close and as Rebecca and Victor come back up to lead us. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Forget not his goodness. He forgives all our iniquity. He heals all your diseases, redeems your life from the pit, and crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. And satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like eagles. Your zeal and passion for the Lord is renewed. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He has made his ways known to Moses and his acts to the people of Israel. Here's Exodus 34. I'm telling you, it's at the heart of who God is. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide. Nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love to those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Do you believe me when I say that the Lord is good? He's declared himself to be good. He's proven himself to be good. He knows our frame. He remembers that we're dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like the flower of the field. The wind passes over it and it is gone. Its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commands. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying his voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Bless the Lord, the people of PCC. Bless the Lord and forget not his benefits, the hope of his goodness. Whatever comes our way, we can rest in and take refuge in our God. Whatever our hearts accuse us, our sin accuses us, and we think about standing before the Lord and enduring his wrath, we can remember that Jesus endured his wrath in our place as our substitute, displaying both the kindness and the severity of God. We think about someone who's far from God. We can remember his goodness, that he's slow to anger. And he will not always chide. And that he draws us to repentance. And when we grow indifferent to those who are far from him, we can, we can be reminded, not only is God good and gracious and merciful, but he is just. And one day judgment will come. God's revealed himself. Let's not have small thoughts of him. But thoughts worthy of him. And then live lives that are worthy of him. Pray with me.